Hey, this is Ertai from the Sightless Farm podcast. We are currently on a break, and while I'm recording the next batch of episodes, I will be publishing a few episodes from a similar but cancelled podcast called A Touch of Gaming. It is co-hosted by Ryan Peach and Brian Counter. Enjoy the episode. A Touch of Gaming, January 2016 edition. Adapt and play. Hi, it's A Touch of Gaming, a podcast about the participation of the blind and partially sighted in the modern tabletop gaming hobby. I'm Ryan Peach. In this edition, we'll be talking game adaptations. This could include everything from game-adjusting house rules, to reference sheet player aids, to marking up boards and cards with a sharpie, to specialized adapter kits involving card sleeves and braille sticker labels. 64-Ounce Games is an online retailer that sells said game adapter kits. They have over 100 products and growing, and they can be found at www.64ouncegames.com, www.64ouncegames.com. We break from our three-part harmony in this edition, with the first part being a Q&A, and the second part being a discussion roundtable. Though this edition won't have many specific game recommendations, it should otherwise be stacked with content. So let's get to it. On this edition of A Touch of Gaming, we'll be doing some talk about game adaptations. To my virtual left is Brian Counter. Hello. And to my right, virtual right, is Richard Gibbs of 64-Ounce Games. Good evening. If you'd like to reach me directly, I can be followed at Red Meeple Ryan on Twitter or by email at redmeepleryan at gmail.com. I'm Richard at 64ouncegames.com or on Twitter I'm at 64ozgames. If you really want to find me, you can get me at heymondo, H-E-Y-M-O-N-D-O at gmail.com and my Twitter handle is cult of, at cult of the old. All right. Richard, why don't you tell us in brief here a little bit about your company, 64-Ounce Games, and how and why you got started with game adaptation. 64-Ounce Games is a company where we primarily produce now um, products that are Braille-oriented. So the main thing that we offer, although we do have some th- other 3D printed stuff and some other, and we'll probably expand, the main thing we offer is what we call an accessibility kit. And what that is, is it's basically stickers with Braille on them that can be applied to a retail game. So I'll buy a retail game and I'll go and I'll transcribe everything that is required to play for that game. And I'll put it on a sticker, sell it with some sleeves. And that's pretty much what we're doing. That wasn't the original intent when I started the company. I started the company with the intent of publishing my own games, but we were going to use Kickstarter, so we wanted a a way to set ourselves apart with the Kickstarter. My wife is a teacher of blind students. We have a lot of blind friends, so it seemed a natural progression to have to make our games um, blind accessible. So we went and we tried to figure out how to do that, and nobody really knew how to do that. The board game manufacturers, of course, have no idea how to to do braille and the braille manufacturers were didn't really know how to do board games so since no one was doing it we decided we were going to have to do it and that ended up being the main thing that our company has been doing in the past two years or so do either you personally or the 64 ounce games do anything to uh, provide adaptation for persons with partial vision, large print, high contrast, anything like that? Currently, no, mainly because I'm not an expert in that area, uh, and and the copyright law gets a bit harder to deal with there. It's certainly clear that a Braille material is an accessible material, and therefore I don't need to play royalties or anything on that it's the law becomes a little bit more questionable if you're talking about taking game artwork and blowing it up 
plus you'd need to have a different scale to be able to do that than I'm able to do. This is not my main job. Um, I'm working as a teacher right now. So this is something that I do um, in the evenings and on the weekends. So so short answer, no. <laughs> okay. I understand the copyright issues, though, and I didn't actually think about that before we started. Us low vision people just mark the crud out of our games, but uh, we're good. Does this sort of gray area with copyright also include uh, any sort of uh, component adaptation, replacing components with other components? I don't think so, although I've never talked to a lawyer about it, um, so if I repl- if I'm replacing a component, it, is it really I'm making a change to it or an addition to it? So it's not like I'm taking away from the manufacturer. And the fact is that the publisher should be happy for me because because I'm getting them sales to a market that they would not have access to otherwise. Uh, and they have been happy, all, all, all the ones that I talked to that had any idea what I was talking about, which not all of them really understood what I was doing or why I wanted to do it, but most of them have been pretty receptive when I've actually talked to them and got a chance to explain what I'm doing. Has the, the response for what you're doing with 64 ounce games changed since you started, and in what form has that change taken? I wouldn't say that it has changed all that much. When I first started, they were pretty positive, and they're still pretty positive today. So, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it's changed, but some of the partnerships we've, we've increased because, number one, I'm figuring out what I need to ask for from, other, from the publishers. Like, at first, it's like, I'd like you guys to help me, but I'm not sure exactly what that means. They didn't know exactly how to deal with what I'm doing. Nowadays, I know that if I'm going to talk to a publisher, probably what I'm going to ask for is for right now we've started doing what we call combo kits, where we provide the game with the accessibility kit instead of selling them separately. There's some advantages in that and that number one, they're for sure getting the correct version so there's no room for user error another advantage of that is we can usually match some of the online retailers as far as what we would have charged for the kit plus the game and we we're still able to make a small profit when we do that we're able to make a small profit off the game small profit off of the accessibility kit and that lets us do an overall cheaper for everybody involved Excellent. How successful do you feel 64-ounce games is at this point? I think it's it's pretty successful. I feel like we're getting a lot of games out there that haven't been out there. I'd like to have time to do more, and there's a lot of things that I'd like to do. But we're expanding on getting more toys. We ran the Dice Kickstarter. I have my the new 3D printer going making accessible dice right now that have braille on them and for like polyhedral sets for Dungeons and Dragons and and White Wolf games and any RPG that you'd want to do. So we ran the Kickstarter for that and that seems to be going well. So we're expanding Mark or there. Um, We're coming up with new products. The trick is to get it successful enough that I don't need to do the teaching job anymore. But the problem there is that I need to have it not so busy that I can't keep up with everything, too. I want a huge market, but I don't want to have a huge market because I don't have time to do a huge market. So (laughs) it's a bit tricky. Understood. Right. I imagine the transitionary period from doing it casually to fully full time will be be, uh, a rough one when you feel you're ready to make that decision. And I don't know if I ever will reach that point or not. It's hard to... It's hard to tell because number one, it's uh, it's really hard to tell where this is gonna go. Um, this is nowhere near where I thought it would be um, when I started the business. Of course, I had no idea where the business would go in it, and when, I, I really don't know where we're going. I don't know how big the blind market is, and I'm not quite sure how to do the market research there because I don't know what percentage of the blind people are gay, willing to be gamers. And what percentage actually know the Braille and what there's just a lot of question marks on our market share. So I I don't know. Sure. As I understand Um, it, this latest Kickstarter for the Braille RPG dice was your second. And when did that Kickstarter take place? The last one happened in November. I think the first one was like in the August of 14, something like that. 
And then your second uh, book is November 2015. Yeah. And you and that yeah. successfully funded as well. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah, and it successfully funded um, for enough to get us a CNC mill and a thermoform machine, which I'm hoping will allow us to make a, more things accessible. Like I think that I'll be able to do board overlays with Braille on it. Um, for um, lots of games, like I use their CNC to cut something out, and then use a transparent or use that as a mold to actually make stuff and put Braille on it. So it would have along the routes, you could feel the routes, and the pieces would sit in there so that blind and sighted could play together, just like it should be. That sounds fun. Yeah, I look forward to seeing what you you come up with, which games you end up applying the, that thermoform process to. Uh, how do you ultimately decide which games do or do not get the adaptation treatment? Me owning the game is a big factor. As I look through my shelf of games that I already own, what I try to think about in the back of my mind is, number one, do I love game? Number two, do I already offer a game that is very similar? If I have Dominion, it, probably my first priority shouldn't be to build do more deck builders because I have Dominion. Yeah, um, there's a lot of different deck builders and a lot of great deck builders, but it seems like I should do one of each genre before I start doubling up and doing more, more of any particular type of game. Makes um, sense. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, some games I do, I put in my bag, and if they're a small game, and if I'm going somewhere, I'll just sit and I'll transcribe it um, when I get there. Some games I'll decide to do because I know the creator of the game and they just ran a Kickstarter or something like that, or I know that I can get a deal with a manufacturer, or in that I know that they're good to work with, so I might do it because of that. And the other thing that we do is we have a Patron as well, and I give in there people pledge a certain amount to vote on what games they want me to prioritize and try to get get on the market as soon as possible. And and I am and that's been going all right. I don't always um, do exactly what they want because of the way that the time works out and the games that are possible. Like um, one that they just that I had suggested to me was the Castles of um, Mad King Ludwig. And while that's a great game, when I actually decided, well, let's look into actually doing this game, that game has a bunch of different cardboard tiles, and the cardboard tiles have really tiny print on them. I, there I couldn't figure out a way to, to put all the information that is on the is on the little tile in the space that I would have needed to do without it interfering with um, play with the sighted players. So it was so sometimes even if I have something requested I'm not able to do it because of the logistics of it or like if they tried to say well, let's do Twilight Imperium 3 I would be like um not today. Right. Now that you're getting some new gear online, Richard, will that change what you choose to adapt or, or not adapt, or or will the decision ultimately be the same? I think that it'll, probably the process won't change that much, but uh, some of the games that I haven't touched because I didn't think I could do them justice, I might decide, well, I can probably do something like that, like I mentioned Ticket to Ride, which is a real classic. I might do uh, the ones that come to mind right off the top of my head are like Days of Wonder games, where they're very good gateway games, and I think gateway is very important because I'm trying to build a market with people who haven't had experience playing a lot of games. Absolutely. And I haven't been able to do Small World or um, Ticket to Ride um, because of because they're sprawling boards, and I might be able to hit more games like that that I haven't been able to do something that really does justice to it. Sure. As I understand it, you do offer a service where if someone sends you a game, you will do a kit for that game. Can you speak a little bit about that? If people do email me directly, I mean, from my standpoint, is I'm there. Usually I'll just charge whatever the kit would cost to do that because, but I require them to send a brand new copy of the game because there I, because I want to, whenever I can keep like the 
cards in the same order that the publisher makes them in, because that way, um, when someone's assembling the kit, it'll go a lot faster if it, the cards are in the same order and they don't need to sort the cards or whatever. But if they send me the game or they contact me with the email, I think that it's a game that I can do. They send me the game, then I transcribe it and then I charge them for whatever the game is. It's nice because I can add things to my catalog that might be games that I don't already own sure. and and that I know that I'll at least get one sale. I know that a lot of I have a bunch of games in our catalog right now that I've not done a sale of. It's I think it's a tragedy that I haven't done a sale of Stone Age. Stone Age is a fantastic worker placement game, but we haven't um, had a sale. I think part of the problem was right when I re- released it was it was between prints and it was go- going from um, Real Grand Games owning it to Z-Man Games owning it. So it was insanely priced on Amazon right when I released it. But now it's cheaper and it's a fantastic game. Um, but I haven't sold one, so... Well, I, and I they have why. an expansion now as well that adds a fifth player and some extra stuff. Yeah, I love that game, yeah, they, by the way. they do have an expansion. They had the expansion for the old one, too. In time, will you eventually be able to take those sorts of submissions uh, that will involve uh, game boards, the kinds of things that you would want to apply the Thermoform machine to? Probably could, but there it's going to be a little bit more difficult because there are a lot more... If there are more moving pieces, I don't know how much the kit is going to cost at the end of the day. Like, if it turns out um, I'm making it and I realize, oh, um, we really need to have replacement for these pieces because they keep getting knocked around. Um, maybe I can 3D print something that'll work that a uh, replacement. Well, if I do that, then that's going to increase the price of the kit. So the person sending the game might be expecting X price, and then it's X price plus 30 when I'm done. So so ultimately what, what you really need to do is actually start producing some of your own kits to get some idea about the investment of time and resource costs before you can actually accept games from other people. Well, I mean, aside from games with very, very simple boards that are just over that I can do an overlay with or yeah. Yeah. If, if I have more experience, I'd be able to more accurately guess at this time. It's just going to be, it would just be guesswork. And I mean, that's just going to come with more experience knowing, and I haven't worked with these materials yet. So I really don't know how much troubleshooting I'm going to have to do, or if I'm going to be smart enough to get it right the first or second time. Um, Sounds like quite an adventure. So it's going to be a... Right. So I I don't know where I'll end up with that. It may be that at the end of the day, I just am only going to support the the games that that are really green, evergreen games, like that are always going to be in print and they're going to be in print till the end of time, like Ticket to Ride. But if it isn't as hard, then I might be willing to do games that are a little bit more i i don't know uh, and like i said i haven't i don't know where we're going to be going in the next three years i mean we've done a lot in the past too that i didn't see coming at all so any to any thing i say is just pure speculation i hope that's in a good way well i hope so too but you'll have to ask me in three years <laughs> <laughs> all right well um I'm, I'm happy to hear that the that these first few years have been been going well for you, and it sounds like it's it's only up from from here at this point. Um, can you tell me either uh, how many kits you've sold to date, or uh, maybe the the top three selling kits? Well, the um, kits that sell the best are absolutely apples to apples and um, Cards Against Humanity. Looks like we've I've done a hundred and. 19 orders, but that doesn't mean that I did 119 kits because sometimes um, an order could be as much as eight kits. Um, I'm trying to find a report that actually tells me. I don't know. <laughs> well, just take. How about just a best guess? We've done, we've done. You, we don't need an exact stat. Just what's your feeling? Is is um, oh, thousand? That's that very impressive. Maybe less. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's that's still uh, rather impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, the the thing is that um, 
the reason why the number is a lot higher than the number of orders is because a lot of the kits we sent out during the original Kickstarter. And I don't have the, um, and we had, I don't know, quite a few backers for that. Um, with the Kickstarter, the original Kickstarter, we had around 250 backers. So that's one kit per backer there. And then 75 that had two kits. So that's around at least over 500 there. Maybe not. I don't know. Less than 500. Quite a few kits. That's quite, that's, that's pretty neat. I like that. Do you have any anecdotes or notable stories you might be willing to share uh, involving uh, customer interactions uh, with with Sixty Bronze Games? Some of our products have come from ideas that parents have had, um, especially our Braille teaching materials. Like one of the parents that I've was talking to was saying, "I have a, a um, blind child who has motor difficulties and." these other issues going on and we're, we're really trying to teach them Braille. Um, and I ended up designing a, um, an exaggerated swing cell for them, which is used for teaching the Perkins Brailler and some Braille puzzle pieces that they could fit together and, um, help teach the concept of Braille, even though that particular child didn't have the motor skills to work with a lot of the, standard products that you'd find at APH or some of the other birding houses for the blind that make braille products. I think that's wonderful, actually. That's really cool. As I understand it, uh, you've attended uh, a few conventions, done demos of games with your adapter kits on them with other blind and low vision persons. Uh, do you have any any stories maybe relating to your experiences with that? A lot of people... Um, having fun with them um uh there were there's been a lot of times where people have sat down with us thinking that they all right we're kind of friends with these people we gotta sit down and we gotta try these things and then by the end they end up being converts and they're playing coup or or bonanza i we have some friends who never thought that they were board gamers at all and they're total converts to and have ordered multiple kits from us and keep asking, well, what, what's next? What do I need to try now? In particular, a lot of our friends who knew that I played board games forever, but they probably had in the back of their mind, oh, he's talking about Monopoly. I played <laughs> the accessible version of Monopoly. That was four hours of my life, and it was a slow death that was determined <laughs> right. the first time around the board. <laughs> right. No, I think it's great that you're you're building the excitement among people, and you have returned customers, and they want more. I think that uh, that kind of excitement is likely to build on itself, and I think that's a cool thing, especially since you're opening it, opening it up and making gaming more accessible to people. Yeah, I think that it's um it's going well. Um, I'm really happy with um having returned customers and people who are excited. Um, we get a lot of like so, and I try to be responsive. One thing was at when we first opened, we didn't have many kids games and we would have a lot of parents ask, well, what should I get for my kids? And because of that, we formed a partnership with Haba, which makes a ton of mm -hmm. great kids games. Um, like they're, they're most famous for like, um, animal upon animal, which you can't really make that accessible because it's a dexterity stacking game. And another one of their big ones is Rhino Hero, which again, it's a dexterity stacking game. But some of their other games are, like, one of my favorites is Monza, which is kind of like Candyland um, in that it's just a racer on the board. But you roll dice, you have to make a few decisions, and I like those as kids' games a lot more than some of the standard fare. Sure. Um, one of the things that has also um, done well is we have a tactile version of memory, and a lot of the parents have really liked being able to do that so that they're if they have two kids they have a blind kid and a um fully sighted kid they can play together because he had a tactile um component to it no that's great too See, yeah bringing excellent. people together i like it do you have a, a game or, or or a set of games that you you always have on you that always seem to be crowd pleasers no matter who you're teaching them to or or when um and games that just that, that sometimes they work and sometimes they don't well 
when you're at a convention and I'm trying to teach the concept of what these um, games could be and trying to convince them that I'm not trying to pawn Monopoly on them, first games that I'll turn to are like Love Letter and Pooh and those games because I have a couple games that are always go-tos because they play in about 10, 15 minutes. You can learn the rules, you can play the game, and they're quick, and someone who's really doing something else just happened to have an extra 10 minutes drop by can play it, demo it, and actually get an idea of what we're talking about and then leave and hopefully tell someone else. So we do a lot of demos of short games and I haven't had many people who um, haven't liked Pooh when they played it. They haven't liked um, Love Letter when they played it. But definitely those short micro games are my go-tos there. And once I get them hooked with something like that, I start showing them the some of them would like to show them more of the heavier games. But a lot of times it's just at conventions, so I don't get a chance to play some of our heavier games with people because at a convention, people have 20 minutes. They don't have an hour and a half. Sure. After the fact, though, either a convention or or through your regular uh, communication channels, do you have customers come back and say, I liked this, what do you have that's the next level? Not so specific. Uh, well, I have one or two customers who are like, what is next? Have said, what what is the next thing that I should play? But, um, but for the most part, I haven't had specific requests from that, but I have had people who have retur- are return customers that ordered a lighter game and ended up with um, the second order. It was something a little bit heavier. Sure. Oh, okay. We're about to turn the page here, and when we come back, we're going to get into more of the round table. So just hang in there, turn the page, and we'll be back in a moment. And we're back. Thank you for keeping up with the touch of gaming. So moving on with the rest of the edition, we have a number of group questions. When adapting game components, does shape or texture play a factor? Shape definitely does play a factor. If I notice that they're very tactilely distinct, I don't need to do a darn thing. Texture, I can't think of a game that texture has been different enough that that has saved me from having to do do something. I mean, a, a texture, there aren't many games that have distinct texture. Yeah, I would say for me, as the low vision person here, I really haven't gone into the, the adapter kits quite yet, but for me, it's it's more about contrast and less about shape. So, sorry to be boring, shape isn't uh, as of yet really on the palette. I think the only thing that uh, I can add is uh, on uh, Jeff uh, Jeff's games, the Space Cadets, free plug Jeff, they always would make me the guy who reaches into the bag to feel for the textured pieces because I got to be very good at that cause, just because of you know what I am. Yeah, I did too. That was the only station I played because it was the <laughs> station I could play. Uh, I, I got... I think I could do five shapes before the timer ran out. I got to be pretty good at that. So that's about the only thing I contribute here. Um, right now, it's as a low-vision person, the uh, it's more about contrast. And I haven't played Space Cadet, so I couldn't speak to that. Have you... I really about, took more of Stronghold's game. Uh, what about uh, games, Brian, that you played where you've had an issue with shapes of pieces being too similar, where you would have preferred a more defined shape at least well i think again i'm i'm coming from the low vision perspective uh and not the blind perspective so for me things like stone uh, not stone age kingsburg where all of the shapes are the same uh, i can see that being a problem for more uh, for for blind people and for colorblind people because you know one of the colors is distinct but then the other two kind of blend in together so having different shapes in that regard would be helpful to both sighted and non-sighted people i mean you can make uh different companies make components and and you can insert those i've even bought some from another company for stone age they had the little logs and stuff and that did help me that texture did help me instead of uh just the blocks so so that that can work yeah, and I'll second on Kingsburg, and I did actually go to the uh, trouble of replacing those colored cubes with 
pieces that are sold by another company. Um, and that made a big difference for me. More, more that can be done from that. Now, I'll ask you, Richard, when it comes to um, doing game adaptations, um, do you use shape or texture as a part of the, the adapter kit uh, beyond the Braille? And if so, in what ways? I have used shapes in the past. Our um, Council of Verona um, kit actually takes advantage of that a little bit. But, that, I mean, that isn't one of my go-to techniques because with the technologies that I have, right, the if I'm doing just our embosser, you can do distinct shapes, but overall it's prob- probably easier and more precise if you don't do a shape and actually do a letter for 99% of what I'm doing, which that wouldn't be the case if it was like we have a kit for Suro, which does need to have distinct shapes to follow the lines of it. But I try to lean away from shapes with the technologies that I have right now. But if I'm doing the thermoform machine um, I or the other thing, I think I'll be doing a lot more just following the lines and that sort of thing. I don't know if that was a sufficient answer, but that's what you get. No, <laughs> no sounds good, man. We're, we're all casual here. Yeah, yeah. This the the, the, I, the answers are quality. It's all good. Um, all right. So, Richard, when it comes to uh, components, do you prefer to adapt existing components or replace them? I prefer to adapt if it's at all possible. Although I have a Place. Like um, the dice game Monza, we have custom dice there because it's. I think that it's better to just replace the dice than to try to make the uh, the existing dice work. Now, I would say that though that if you can make what's already there work, it's is it's better for the sighted people and for. Uh, I think that it it keeps it closer to the original intent of the game usually. So I, I and that, that's usually what I try to do is keep with the original intent of the game. I prefer to just adapt, uh, but as the low vision person, adapting often means getting out a Sharpie and marking up my boards, <laughs> which which horrifies all of my friends for resale value, but I don't care. Um, I prefer adaptation because it takes less time, uh, whether it's getting a Sharpie and marking the crud out of the Age of Empires 3 board that I had many, many years ago. Um, but I will make new parts instead of adapting sometimes. I got I got Spyfall, and the cards were a little bit small, and I just wanted them to, to be a Courier New Font kind of big text, and so I typed those stupid things by hand. And then made my own cards. I glued them onto old magic cards and sleeved them. And that was quite a bit of work. But for that game, we've played that enough to where it makes it worth it. You know, I've done that for, for other games as well. So I prefer to to adapt. But if the game is good enough, I'm willing to make my own cards. I also do that for But Wait, There's More. Uh, because I appreciate the guys who designed that and the graphic designer making the, the fonts really big. However, for us low-vision people, the f- the uh, contrast isn't great and the letters are shaped weird. So if you're under a time crunch and trying to read them, it doesn't always work. So again, I took the cards I had and I made career new font and glued them and, and pasted them and uh, sleeved them. And I had no problem doing that, even with the time expense uh, that it had. And what those when you make new stuff... What it allows you to do is be creative, and that's what I did with those, is I got to make my own cards. For Spyfall, I made Middle Earth and Star Trek Bridge and other geeky stuff. And for But Wait, There's More, I made some really childishly boyish things in addition to what was already there, uh, and that's worked pretty well. At this time, uh, I would say that I have probably done more component replacing than game uh, adapting, and that's just been a matter of, of access to supplies and, and spending the time doing the, the adapting, my adaptations are a little bit different than applying Braille labels. Um, and it's it's a kind of a game-by-game game process to figure out what it is I need to do. The replacement uh, aspect of uh, my adaptations is probably the easiest because I can look at these colored cubes. This is wood, stone, and gold and go, okay, I know that there's a company out there that has a pack that has little gold bars and 
and little stone chunks and uh, little wooden log shapes that I can sub sub in, and that will decrease my dependence on on others and just keep the game moving a lot more more smoothly when I'm able to get and trade my resources myself aside from other things. If it comes down to a choice, though, of marking up components, adapting them, or replacing them, I would probably choose the the adaptation. Of, I kind of feel like that's the, the path of least resistance. Uh, and, and I'd use the example of, say, putting sleeves on cards and then putting something on the sleeves. So you're not actually permanently defacing the cards. You can remove the sleeves later if you want to. Uh, I'll ask you, Richard, when it came to deciding to apply Braille to cards and tiles, was there a personal decision to decide whether or not these should be uh, sold as something that could apply directly to the the cards or tiles or um, something that's applied to a sleeve or, or cover uh, that goes over the components? Personally, I'm, this is... I don't like sleeves. I, I'd rather touch my cards. I don't, and if I love the game, I, I'm okay with ruining the game because I play it enough. I've never been a fan of sleeves. However, um, it was the thought when we started the company that, or started going in this direction, was that people would be buying these kits to put on the games that they already own so that they can play with their blind friends. It seemed to me that if you're going to do that, the person who whose game it is might not be blind, might only play with their blind friend once. So leaving it seemed like the smarter way to go because because then, as you said, Ryan, that you, you can undo it. Makes sense. But the blind, or with the Braille... Um, what I've a lot of times adding the sleeve plus the embossed braille, the cards get huge. So when we do it, we leave it up to the customer. Do they want to put it directly on the card or directly on the on the sleeve and then put it leave on the card? Prefer to do it directly onto the card because it, I think that it makes shuffling easier. The cards a little bit less thick and not take as much room on the table does the one over the other change the price of the kit being sold we default to giving giving the sleeves although if someone didn't want the sleeves and told me that ahead of time i'd probably i'd take the price of the sleeves off the kit but just to keep the website streamlined i didn't want to offer both options so they just default to the sleeves unless someone decides to tell me otherwise sure okay I'll say I'll, I'll add this to my thoughts about marking up, modifying games, and adapting games. Uh, one exception I've made is that if it's a game that is available in the mainstream, you could buy it from any big box store where it virtually has no no value other than as something I'd keep for myself or or give away or something. Then I feel free to do whatever it takes. To, the, to make that game work, including using the patented Brian Counter Sharpie ma marking <laughs> technique. Hey, it to, works. Uh, make, make that make that game stand out. So there there might be some some serious uh, marking and scratching of some of my games in the future. Do any of your game adaptations involve adjustments to gameplay or house rules? I don't want to touch that. By that, I mean I don't, don't want to get into changing the game because either I can do the game or I can't do the game. The only t time that I'll do that is if I'm, my adaptation doesn't actually change the game and makes the game playable. And I've done that with the resistance. Uh, um, usually in the resistance, the way that you figure out who the spies are is you you open your, your eyes during a certain phase. They'll say, everybody close their eyes, everybody open their eyes. That's a spy. Mm -hmm. And then everyone close their eyes. All right. So all the spies know each other. Well, for our kits, what we do is each of the spies takes a turn passing their, their identity card around. And anyone who's a spy can feel that card anyone who isn't a spy can if you're playing the resistance you might be playing with three blind people and the re and five sighted people you uh, for that keep it the same instead of using braille there i use a big tactile x versus a big tactile o so if you're a bad guy you'd feel it x if you're a good guy you'd feel an o and any 
buddy can tell the difference between an X and an O on a card. Oh, that's a great idea. I like that. So that's that would the only time I will change one of the rules is if I need to to make the game work as the game was intended. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good example of, of using uh, shape as part of adaptation. Right, and, and I don't use that very often. Because usually it isn't necessary because either the person will, when I'm doing it, either the person will know the Braille or is sighted and can see anyway. Well, now that you've done games like The Resistance, maybe the the next step up is to do uh, Battlestar Galactica. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. Battlestar, I would love to do. Actually, I purchased Dark Moon just because I want I really want to do a game in that in that genre. And I think Dark Moon might be a little bit more attainable than Battlestar. Although um the, the problem with Dark Moon is it has a lot of dice, so mm-hmm. I'd need to make custom dice for that. But I, I'm ho- I'm hopeful for Dark Moon still. I really like Dark Moon and it's much better than Battlestar Galactica for me even as a low vision person. So I can't imagine making all of the pieces for Battlestar Galactica uh, in the fashion that you do, but I can imagine it might be more doable for Dark Moon. Right now I have 600 dice to print already. Once I have those 600 dice printed, maybe I'll take another look at Dark Moon. Brian, same question for you. I think for me it's a little bit different because I have partial vision. So often... It's just on the fly. It really is. There's a complex board set up. People will verbally describe to me what's going on. I have very patient and wonderful friends. We played Pick Picnic, which is the the American version. It's a game where birds try and get stuff and go to the various places and wolves can come out and eat them. And my friend Chris would read each palette and what colored cubes were on the palette because they're all the same shape. You know, I just couldn't see it very well. And so that's that's how we kind of work around there. There's not not a whole lot of house rules because we either I can play it or cannot, and the, the contrast is the biggest thing for me. However, when contrast fails, my friends will usually adapt by describing things verbally for me, and it usually doesn't take that much longer to play. That actually sounds like a kind of fun game. How'd you find that one, Brian? Oh, gosh. My friend Jason, he's the uh, heavy Euro guy. Uh, he has literally 450, 500 games. He never gets rid of anything. And so I asked for older games to do for the segment on another podcast. Uh, They're like, oh, that's called to the old. And then we'll whip out a game and play it. And some of them I don't do because they were terrible games. But uh, many of them have turned into segments and they're just fun. And they kind of make that a point for my benefit. And I I appreciate that about them. Okay. Um, I'll say yes. Um, I consider House rule to be a last resort if nothing else is going to work. But there are a number of games where um, I've made an adjustment to gameplay, which does not, in my opinion, impact the actual gameplay. And I will use drafting, that mechanism, as, as the thing that I'm probably most familiar with making adjustments to. So, for example, in a game like Seven Wonders or Among the Stars or something that uses a, a similar sort of simultaneous selection. I basically wait for everyone else to make their selections, then I will get some assistance with the reading of the cards. I've played the games enough, so titles are usually enough. I make my own selection. I reveal, everyone reveals, we do our thing, hands are passed, game proceeds. Because of the way the game plays, you can't really affect what people have in their hand. Once they've made their choices, that's it. I, I feel overall that doing this, making this adjustment, does not not really impact the gameplay, the way the game is played, the decisions people make. It doesn't put me at an advantage or a disadvantage. So that's that's an accommodation that I'm, I'm willing to make. One thing that I wanted to add, with the way I'm approaching it, it's always very important to me that, that the blind people and sighted people, if they're playing at the same game, it is the same. So whenever I'm doing a hit, I try to make sure that um, like with the adaptation that I talked about for the resistance, the blind and the sighted people are doing the same adaptation. I want to make sure that it is the same experience for both for parties. If I do do a do do something like that, do you find some with some games it's tricky to provide an adaptation that that does not put one side or the other at an advantage or disadvantage during gameplay? No, I think that, that I'm trying to be careful about my, my selection of which games I do to make sure that, that if I'm going to do it, there isn't going to be an advantage to being blind or sighted. 
No, I, yeah, I'm, I'm not flattering here. I think the uh, what you described for Resistance is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, and I think a lot of games could probably just accept uh, a little bit of adjustment like that to be be ready. And that leads us to our next question, which is, uh, which games do you feel are, are ready to go out of the box with little to no adaptation? One of the Haba games called Touching and Feeling, we sell a kit for. I'll be honest with you, the kit is kind of a ridiculous kit because it just adds texture to something that could otherwise be completely playable without the kit. But that get, the advantage of having the kit is that we have the Braille rules, the reference to the rules in in a digital format. We have, like, Braille instructions. But there there are a couple... Touching and feeling, definitely. I, I can't think of... There are more games I'm just not thinking correctly right now. Like, there are lots of games that you could do with minimal modifications, like one that... A great game that comes to mind is goblet if you just took some i don't know elmer's glue and put it on the black pieces then that would be enough to make them tactically distinct so i i think that with there are quite a few abstract games that you could do something like that real quick to get, make them accessible i think for me ryan I, i'll just default to my uh my standard go-to for for stuff like this is uh, no thanks you know as a low vision person I did re redo a bunch of the cards to make them more contrasty, but out of the box, it's very playable. So that doesn't require a lot of adaptation, and it's such a simple game. You can describe it as you play it, and everybody's in, and, and it's all good. Yeah, I'm going to second no thanks. I, I, I think outside of a standard deck of playing cards, even if you had to put Braille on it, it's just a, a set of numbers. Mm-hmm. I, I find it very easy to follow with a uh, with a little bit of description. Once once the numbers are, are read, I can stack them up into my own stacks. The next level up for, from that for me uh, is a game called Dead Man's Draw, and it gets somewhat more involved uh, after that, trying to sort cards into various stacks for scoring. But I find that after enough plays, you know what the different abilities are supposed to be, and it's just what I've done is is just uh, when I make up my stacks, I put them in alphabetical order. And then uh, during play, it's just a matter of figuring out whether they're lower or higher. I wouldn't necessarily recommend this one as, as to one, I'd say, uh, needing little or no adaptation. There aren't very many games I can think of on my own where I would say little or no adaptation is required. At least for me, I find that drafting uh, games where the primary mechanic mechanism is drafting are probably the uh, easiest for me to get into with this little need for for adaptation my my adaptation comes primarily in the form of sighted assistant from patient and and decent people who mm -hmm. i seem to have at least one of in my group and, and of course uh one game that i consider uh to be almost playable out of the box if it wasn't for the steep learning curve um, and iconography would be Dungeon Lords. Aside from that, the pieces are very distinctive. It's very easy to navigate your own player board without any assistance. Once you're really taught what is where on the board, uh, you wouldn't necessarily need to mark up any of that. It's it, it comes down to the cards and the iconography after that. So I really don't don't have much uh, to contribute to this particular question. For you, Brian, what about contrast? Are there any particular games you can think of where the contrast was was solid like you, you wouldn't know, take the the brian counter sharpie uh patent pending to the board or enlarge the font on the cards to make them playable i'm going to try and be short here because contrast is so important to us low vision people let me call on roll for the galaxy it's good and bad for us low vision people in that the colors and I do we do play with a, another guy who has perfect vision but he's colorblind so it's an, an interest, interesting group but uh, the role for the galaxy has very distinguishable colors and the numbers and that's all good yet at the same time the text on the tiles is really really small I have a 12x prescription magnifier handheld prescription magnifier and that's the threshold by which uh, I can read that if it goes any lower than what's on those things I can't read them and sometimes I get lazy 
and ask for some visual assist just to speed things up, speed things up a little bit. Uh, but that's kind of a dual game where it's got some good parts and it's got some, I wouldn't say bad parts, just more challenging parts is, is the phrase I would use. Okay. Which games do you have on your adaptation to-do list? Let's see, I'd like to do Elf. One that is, I already mentioned Dark Moon eventually. I'd like to, I was thinking Alhambra. Um, I keep mentioning Ticket Ride. I feel like that's a line people should be able to play that. I got a lot on my list uh, that I'm, that I can't come up with at the top of my head. Are there any games so. that you've been waiting for this this new gear to to do? There's a few games that I think that I could probably do a better job if I have it that I'm thinking of. Like so I want to see if I can't upgrade the like the pandemic kit that we already have. So that it is more, more more friendly, harder to knock pieces over if that's financially viable. Like I want to do one that I was looking at today even was Snake Oil. I want to do that. I want to have more party games that aren't apples to apples and aren't um, cards against humanity. Sure. There are lots of good ones out there. I was going to say that I'm so done demoing those. <laughs> yeah, I would say uh, I got Snake Oil uh, a while back, and I I really like the game, still do. But once I pl- I started playing, uh, but wait, there's more. Oh my gosh, that one is can be so much more funny. Uh, nothing against Snake Oil at all, but uh, but wait, there's more is is a trip. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to do both of them for sure. Okay, Brian, what stack of games do you have waiting in the shop for uh, your Sharpie magic and other sorts of adaptation techniques? Well, that's kind of a hit or miss and at the moment kind of thing. Uh, Dice City is the one I have next on my list of of marking up because they're Hobbit cards, as we like to call them, and some of the symbology blend. Yeah, yeah, the cards in that are tiny. Yeah, and so what I'm going to do is get out the Sharpie, you know, silver Sharpie, black Sharpie, and some other color to distinguish it just to make it more visually accessible to me. Uh, and then the rest of the people can play as normal. There's nothing wrong with the cards. You know, they made them fine. The graphic design isn't horrid. It's just that it's just it blends in a little bit for me at my vision point. And- uh, just to ask you quickly, Brian, then, are there games that you've moved out of your collection because you, you felt they were just going to be too much, too much work? or you just weren't in the mood to adapt it, uh, and it needed it, so out it went? Uh, yeah, Race for the Galaxy. That, that's two, that's a twofold answer, though. The iconography was fine, and I learned it, and I kind of got bored with the game a little bit. Nothing wrong with it. Uh, just one of my friends used to play We played it too much. Uh, once I got Roll for the Galaxy, it was just like, Ugh, I don't want to play Race anymore. And the iconography and some of the smaller symbols was becoming more hard for me to see or more difficult for me to see. And so that was easy to toss, and I sold it to a friend for five bucks. I've got three games. Aside from other little uh, minor adaptations, uh, I definitely have three games on the short list that um, I really, really want to get adapted so I can, in some cases, play them again, in other cases, play them for the first time. And those are the Illuminati card game, uh, which has 350 cards now. Oh, no. hey, you, I was going to say, wait a minute. What are you That's laughing about over there, Brian? Because I know how many. I, I played that like once, like 15 years ago, or, or whenever it came out. I don't even remember it came out. Uh, and there's a lot of cards in that thing. Yeah, well, the, the expansions, uh, just they add more stuff. I think it's a, it's a great, light little game. The more people playing, the faster it seems to seems to get and it's just it's silly and light about the illuminati and world domination and all that and and i don't know i i got hooked on it years ago and i want to be able to play it and i know what i want to do to adapt it it's just a matter of taking the time to get the supplies and stuff that i need to make it happen uh the second one on that list is medina the city building game uh, by Stronghold Games. Now, on the face of it, Medina looks like it should be ready to roll. I mean, it's loaded with distinctive wooden bits. Uh, the board is a grid, all of this sort of stuff. But wait, you've got four different colors, eight different colors, so four player colors, and then four different colors for scoring. And those components are exactly the same. Uh, so it needs some work. It, it needs some work. And I had some ideas and it sat at a friend's place, not actually being done with. So 
uh, whenever uh, what needs done is done to that game, then I'll, I'll be able to uh, get it to the table and hopefully enjoy it, since a lot of people seem to think it's a really great uh, abstract game. The third and final one is Modern Naval Battles Global Warfare. It's an update to the old Modern Naval uh, or sorry, uh, Cold War Naval Battles card game. Uh, this is a game I actually think you'd do all right with, Brian. The uh, text is minimal. The iconography is light and uh, very self-explanatory. The uh, uh, scoring numbers are very large in uh, the top right-hand corner and a large star on each card. This is the game that if I'm going to learn Braille, this is one of the games I want to learn it for um, because I feel like it's it's not going to be too text-heavy. Um, I, I feel like the, the experience will be comfortable play, while playing this game. And, and I'm, I like this sort of naval warfare theme, so I'm keeping the game with that, that, goal, that eventual goal in mind of learning Braille so, so I can get this game adapted um, and eventually get to play it. Well, um, as for what you just talked about a minute ago, um, something like... Uh, Medina would be a ideal candidate for um, Braille because it's, it's just color. So all I'd need to do is make a bunch of stickers that were R for red or B for blue, and you could just put those on um, on the shapes. The shapes are already tactilely distinct, so it would be really quick to do with um, the stickers that we do. Those three are probably the ones that need the most serious adaptation of all the games I have. So Ryan, we're uh, yes. we're running a little long on time. How many questions we got left, bud? A two. Okay, what games would you like to redo the adaptation for, and how? I wish that I could do a better job with Cards Against Humanity than I'm currently doing. That's just the main main problem with that is that the cards are have so much text on them that it can't fit on the physical space of the. Uh, card and cards against humanity so what i've been doing is um i've been using a bigger sleeve than the card itself and telling people well just put a little bit of card stock in there with the sleeve just so that it can physically fit the one that i'd like to do if i can get the i'd like to do a better grid for um suro with um if we get when i get the cnc and i'd like to do a better board for pandemic there, there there are a couple games that i'd just like to take another look at the other ones i'd like to get some go through some of my older kits i've learned tricks to make it so that i am farther away from the margins and can do it can actually make an accessibility kit in a lot less time than when I first started so the, and take up less sticky Braille for the same information so I can kind of condense it so that I can make the kits cheaper on my end. Sure. Is that a situation where you'll just quietly replace old kits with new ones in your catalog? Yeah, probably. I don't think that I'd do a big announcement about it um, unless it. I really thought that it was a significant improvement. Like, I might do one with Suro if I did a, a deeper grid that the tiles I actually fit into, which I kind of want to do. And, Brian, what about you? Well, anything I, you'd like – any marker mistakes? Any Anything you'd like to glue differently? <laughs> Different colors, maybe? No, I, believe it or not, I'm going to be really boring here. I'm pretty satisfied with the, the adaptations I've made. I think uh, I adapted Cosmic Encounter because I took the uh, – the white ships and drew black marker on them just in the in rings and made special shapes and somebody said what are those command ships or something I'm like no that's just markers so that it, i can have the black on white so that i can see them from across the table a little bit better and they all liked what i did so then i wound up marking up the rest of the ships just for fun but uh, i wouldn't take any of it back well at this point with whatever adaptations i I've done, I'm pretty satisfied with. I will say, though, that my replacement of the resource cubes for Kingsburg, realizing after the fact that they do sell a, uh, I think it's a, a King's resource chest or something like that, specifically for Kingsburg, where it replaces the, the cubes with wooden 
wooden gold pieces and wooden stone pieces. Had I known that, maybe I would have saved myself a little money and gone that route just to adapt that game. But I still like what uh, I've chosen where the little gold bars and uh, uh, wooden stone chunks for that game. Uh, And I'm looking forward to doing more of the same, replacing those uh, dull plain resource cubes in other games with other specially shaped components from companies like Stronghold, sorry, Stonemeyer Games, uh, get, let's get the names right here, and, and other companies that make customized shapes. Um, I did that for uh, Catan. I replaced all the resources with a set, uh, I believe, made by Mayday Games. They called it uh, the Yucatan Resource Kit, compatible with Catan, but not actually endorsed by Mayfair Games for their game. And it's to the point where, with that game, uh, people would prefer using those over the cards. So uh, sometimes it uh, it works out for more than just myself. Hmm. Are there any games that you would consider to be too cost prohibitive to adapt, and in what ways? Maybe... I'm thinking of this because I just got the expansion pack for it, but um, probably Quarriers, because Lord knows how many er, that I mean. <laughs> I mean <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh, and you you think uh, that one might be too cost prohibitive uh, because you'd have to replace the dice with custom dice. Yeah. Oh yeah. Pretty much. No, I, I'm I'm very horrible at at getting making myself uh, do doing projects. I made a uh, an acquire game with ceramic floor tiles, put real company names on them, and it took me like months, you know, in my evenings and weekends. And I, I kind of regretted doing that because it took me so long. But darn it, it looks cool at the end. So I do stuff like that, and I rarely will go down the road of doing anything that's going to be really pricey uh, after I got done with that because that cost me about 25 bucks of materials from Lowe's to do. So I, I don't really do that a whole lot. Whoever publishes acquire, they should have you at their conventions doing game demos with your oversized uh, souped up version of acquire oh it, it's fun I, i'm proud of it it just took forever to acquire do it. anymore i said i don't know who owns acquire anymore I, I don't either actually um last version that i saw printed was is sucked so much compared to the older versions yeah i've heard that too well yeah i mean i've seen the newer version and i think it's i don't blame them because it was very cost efficient and they used cheap cardboard but it worked. But I'm I'm one of those idiots who spent like seventy bucks for the really cool Avalon Hill version with the plastic buildings and the plastic inlay, you know, the board that you can lay tiles on. Uh, and I don't regret for one second spending a good chunk of change on that version. Oh no, it's a fantastic game. Mm-hmm. There's a game that came out uh, in 2015 that's a some are saying is like the family-friendly version of Acquire, but it's uh, it's another game, and I can't recall the name of it at this time. Stockpile. Okay, yeah, yeah. And it is. It's a simpler version of Acquire. You don't have to look, go look up at tables. It's one fault, and I, I do like it a lot. It's one fault that it is prone to randomness factors. And you know me, I'm the self-announced lover of all randomness, but I have to admit I showed it to my friends who are heavy Euro guys, and one of them got totally totally screwed out of the game because of a randomness factor or two so i I get why it's not uh, as popular but it is a family-friendly acquire style game and it's just cards right um no well it's mostly there's a board but you put cards around the board uh, but it's mostly cards and uh i think it's fun but i still love the old acquire absolutely my answer to this question is risk 2210 ad or more to the point it was um, and I'll, I'll just briefly explain, uh, back when I had partial vision, where Hasbro has this tendency to, to make five colors that poorly contrast with each other with their components in games that have five players. They've been doing it forever, and I don't know why. But I had considered spray painting three of the five sets in colors that would make them stand out quite a bit, as well as other modifications to make the game more, more playable specifically talking about the cost of the spray paint and what have you versus the cost of the game itself. And I determined that it would cost as much, if not more, than what it costs to purchase the game by itself. And for me, uh, my feeling is that if an adaptation is going to cost more than the game itself, then that might just be a little too rich for my blood. 
Sure. And I consider my alternatives. Uh, at this point, though, I don't need that sort of, of high contrast for that game. If someone else wants to go ahead and uh, paint a spray paint my uh, my RIS 2210 AD pieces, uh, they're welcome to go ahead and do that. But sure. for me, I need something a little different. So it's not going to be nearly as cost prohibitive for me at this point. Okay, and I think the uh, Richard, you've been with us a long time. Thanks again. Um, I just wanted to give you the opportunity, if you wanted to, to uh, plug your braille, liter- your love of braille literacy, uh, what you, what draws you to it, and what you hope to do with that. I know a lot of blind adults. I just firmly believe that the ones who have, I know a lot of ones who know braille well and who don't know it at all, and the ones who have who've been more successful as far as career and i mean it's just clear to me from my the people that i know that it's important it's useful at at whatever level that people can reach at it it it, it seems to me that um you can do sustained reading you can do lots of things with um braille that just aren't possible if you're struggling with um trying to make it work with low vision when you you really could be using at least braille to supplement sure so helpful I've, i've i've seen it so many times and it makes me sad when someone who could be successful especially young people are pushed away from it because it doesn't need to be the entire toolbox but it it's a damn useful thing to have in your toolbox no, I, I, I get you. Totally understood. Truth in, uh, at, truth in lending, as they say. I, I am going blind and, and have been legally blind, but I do not even know Braille yet. But uh, that's certainly a consideration in the future. So uh, I applaud you for doing that, doing the work on that as well. So I think that's about it, Ryan. Yeah, let's stuff this one in the bag and go. All right. Uh, again, uh, thank you, Richard, for joining us in this edition of A Touch of Gaming. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, uh, we'll hear your voice in participation in other topics. Yep, and good luck with the company, right. and thanks for thanks what you do, man. Thanks for having me. Yep, thanks for your time. All right. Thank All you. Right. All right, and take care. Out. All right, now let's get hands-on with A Touch of Gaming. Bye for now.